Well, last week we birthed a new series, and the series out of the book of Revelation, chapters 1 through 5, and it's entitled, Everything is Going to Be All Right. Last week I made comment, it's, it's one thing when somebody says, oh, let me tell you, everything's going to be all right. And I understand your problem, but everything's going to be all right. So what? Somebody says everything's going to be all right. A kind statement. But unless they can back it up and say, what are you going to do to make it all right? How do you know it's going to be all right? And I suggested last week, as I do again this, that the book of Revelation is a recording of God's revelation, his word to us, to tell us everything is going to be all right. I will predict a Christian who goes through a healthy, hear that, healthy study of the book of Revelation will come out the other end and cannot help to be persuaded to that, that idea even though they may grapple holding on to it, but have to be persuaded, you know what? I know it is true. Everything is going to be all right. Imagine with me that you're freezing cold. You, you just feel like you can't handle the cold anymore. And you have some blankets there in your, in your dwelling, wherever you may be. There are blankets available, but you choose not to use those blankets but you're freezing cold. Or imagine with me that uh, you're just flat broke. You have no money. And I mean, things are crisis proportion now. Got to find money. And you know that you have money in your bank account, but you just choose not to withdraw it. You say, well, are you crazy? Why? That makes no sense whatsoever. What if you were starving to death, I mean just famished, hadn't eaten in days and just thinking, I've got to find food, and you know there's food in the refrigerator, but you choose not to go to the refrigerator. You'd say, this does not make any sense. Imagine with me that you're worried about your future. Imagine that you're confused about your circumstances of life. And you just choose, I, I don't think I'm going to go to the book of Revelation, and I'm not going to study it. I'm not going to try to really see what it says. That would be absolutely foolish. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of us here that are in stages of life and issues that we're facing. We're worried. We're confused. And for some reason, we're saying, oh, I don't go to Revelation. Can't see that one. Can't figure it out. And I'll tell you, that's happening worldwide, and it is a shame. The good news is, here we're going to be able to jump into Revelation. Here's how it's going to work. Eight years ago, I taught from chapters 4 all the way to the end, long series. We have it all packaged and available if you want that. Uh, I would encourage you to hold off on that until we come to the end of this series, because I'm going to give you some direction on how to use it at that time. But that's all set and available. We're going to go one through five, which means we're going to overlap four and five. And that overlap of four and five is for a reason, because there is, there is the critical part of the whole book. You get four and five, and other things can make sense. I think two of the greatest chapters of all the Bible. If I want to convince somebody who is a Christian, who believes in the Word of God, I'm going to say, hey, let's, let's go to Revelation four and five. Watch what you find there. And so we're going to do that Palm Sunday and Easter. 
Great time to bring friends, as all times are. But we're going to hit it hard then. I started looking over the weeks. I said last week, I, over the week we were in the, the snow in, I, I, uh, I thought, you know, there's a reason chapters 1 through 3 come in front of 4 and 5. And the more I started reading and looking at it, I said, uh, we need to start with chapter 1. So what we're going to do is at the end of the Easter, when Easter's over, we're going to take four weeks, this is the plan at least, that I'm going to give you what I'm going to call four keys to unlocking revelation. And that's when you're going to take the key, open it up, and go, whoa, oh, that's how you understand this book. Ah. I'm going to give you four booklets that I've uh, had compiled. Four little booklets. One has to do with the rapture, the other on tribulation, the other millennium, and the last on numerology. And oh boy, are your eyes going to be open. And you'll say, now I see why this book is such a book of comfort. I'm going to encourage you, as I did last week, and then we'll jump into the text. I encourage you, not necessarily right now, but when we get close to, uh, to Easter, I want you to get the book, More Than Conquerors. We have about 50 in the bookstore this week. We didn't last week, but we had about 50 of them for this week. More Than Conquerors by William Hendricks. And there's another very excellent work, Revelation for the Christians Today, that uh, I've not gone as far through, but have used it over this uh, last few weeks. And I, and I have to say it's an excellent work so far as I've been uh, looking at it. You'll hear me parrot much of their understanding as they've dug deeply in to understand some of the detail of the book of Revelation. So, having said that, nine learnings. You got your insert? Look at it with me because I think it'll probably make it a little easier to follow. Nine learnings that we can take from the first chapter, which is an introduction to the Revelation. Let's review the first four, and I'm just going to read and then move right along because we've got five others very important. And the first are these. Number one, the revelation is of Jesus Christ communicated by an angel to the apostle John. Verse one in, verses 1 and 2, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. If you get the podcast from last week or the CD, note what we talked about there, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the important point. Number two, the revelation is an unveiling of the plan of God for the history of the world and especially for the church. In verse 1 it says, to show the things which, are, uh, which must soon take place, which literally means is about to begin, about to begin. Have to realize this, folks. Please understand, when you go through this book of Revelation, you make sure you know that this is not a book written for people who live right before the second coming of Jesus. Because you'll experience this event and that event and this personality and that personality. Don't believe that for a moment. Written for the whole church of all time. And so I said last week, I'll say it again, in a kind way, but if, if you have le read the Left Behind series, uh, if you uh, are familiar with the older book of the uh, great uh, late planet Earth, or uh, the late great planet Earth, uh, set it aside. Whatever you learn there, hold it. And then after you've heard the teaching, you can go back. If you believe it, fine. But I think you're going to find something far healthier in terms of the perspective of Revelation. Number three, there is a blessing 
on those who appropriately use the revelation. Verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. There are seven beatitudes scattered throughout the revelation. This first one, blessed, happy, satisfied. There is a specific blessing saying, you read, listen to, and then take heed to what you hear or read, and you are going to be blessed. This is our God who promises that. Why would we not go to the book of Revelation? It amazes me that people say, you know, even when there's opportunities to get it in a healthy way, I don't know, I don't know. No, you go for it. Good stuff comes from this. Number four, the revelation was given for the church of all ages and all places. Beginning at verse four, it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Just to understand that these seven churches in Asia Minor were representing the church of all time. Don't view this as one represents this dispensation and another church the next dispensation and so forth. Don't think of it like that. And so we're going to plow through chapters 2 and 3 beginning next week. And those are going to be the seven churches. We'll look at a message to each church. It'll have nothing to do with the comfort from your perspective as you go through the next week. You say, where's this comfort? Because it's going to be digging into our hearts to see the sin. They represent the church of all time and all places. And we will understand as we hear these seven churches say, oh, I struggle with that. I struggle with that. And the idea is, yeah, we're all struggling, and we will forever struggle. And we want to fight in that struggle, but we will not fight, not well, if we don't believe we're winning the fight. And so he's going to kind of whet the appetite through chapters 2 and 3, and then chapters 4 and 5 is a big splash, a refreshing splash when we come to those two chapters. Now, let's pick up this week. Number five, the Trinity is worthy to be adored in light of the revelation. Now, I'm going I'm to ask you as you read verses 4 through 6, watch what you see here. It begins with the salutation. That's a greeting. He's going to say grace and peace to you. At the very end of verse 6, it's going to be concluded with a kind of a doxology or an adoration. It says, it says to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. It's what's in between. There is a great understanding here. Ah, this grace and peace, whatever it may be, this wonderful doxology, but there is a link in between the two. Let's read it. Grace to you and peace from one, him who is and who was and who is to come, and from two here, the seven spirits who are before his throne, and three, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, why that link in between the two? It's because of the salutation. The salutation says grace and peace. You know what grace is? Grace is unmerited favor. It's God giving to us that which is good and eternal. 
that which truly counts, undeservingly he gives to us. Peace. I love the way Hendrickson talked about peace. He says, peace is really the reflection of the smile of God in your life. It's when you see God smiling, saying, I see you. I see you in my son's righteousness. You're okay. You're all right. You're mine. And that smile that responds and says, in spite of how bad things may be, just knowing that you're saying that, Father, I'm all right. It is grace and peace. And what you see coming next is a a revelation of the triune Godhead who is the provider of grace and peace. Three persons. We just saw them. The first provided by the Father. It says who was and is and who is to come. He's the provider. The next seven spirits, I could take five minutes and I think have you fairly convinced that's the Holy Spirit but time will not permit. I will let you research that on your own. I'll suggest that's referring to to the perfect number of seven, the complete one, Almighty God, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Then it says, Jesus merited. Now this is merited by Jesus, this grace and peace, provided by the Father, dispensed by the Spirit. But now here's the one that merits that peace and that grace for us. And this is what it says, the faithful witness That mentions his earthly work as a faithful witness. It goes to his description of the resurrection here, the firstborn from the dead. And then we see his exaltation now. He's the ruler of the kings. Now, all of this detail that's given here, it's for a reason. And I hope you'll see the reason in the last three minutes of this message. He's painting a picture here. And he's drawing this line or coloring in this and saying this about the Father and this about the Spirit and this about the Son and this about Jesus again because of where he's taken us. Notice it says in the same text that he loves us, Jesus, he loves us, he released us from our sin by his death and then it said made us kingdom. Isn't that interesting? He's made us to a kingdom, and then it says priests. You know what the priests were? Those were the people in the Old Testament that could walk right before God and start speaking to God, say, God, please, on behalf of, would you? So what we'd have to do if we were living in the Old Testament, we'd go to the priest, say, would you please, on behalf of us, would you talk to God? And they'd go, okay. No, no, no. Now he's taken terms that were used for Jewish people, for the Israelites, for the people of the nation of Israel, kingdom and priests, and he's saying, that's what I've made you. I've turned you into a kingdom. You're a priest. Now it's the church that is Israel. Now it's you and me who are circumcised of the heart. We're truly the Jewish person. We're his people is what he's saying. Now we come to number six. It says the second coming of Jesus is announced as a comfort for believers, but as a horror for all others. Notice verse 7. Behold, he is coming in the clouds. This is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And then it says, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth 
will mourn over him, so it is to be, amen. Now, when he says, and they will mourn, he's not talking about repentance, like in the Beatitudes we recently studied. No, 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 no. This is the mourning of someone who is absolutely hopeless, who's groaning and moaning, oh, because now Jesus has come back, and that's it. And all those who pierced him, and we all certainly contributed to his piercing, but this is referring to those who have rejected him through the years. Seeker, as you walk outside a relationship with Christ, you're in the family of the other, not in God's family. And that day when he comes, who knows when, when he comes, it says, and every eye, even those who pierced him, his enemies, every eye. Let me ask you, some of you have studied and read Revelation, heard things about it, and you assume there's going to be a rapture in which a rapture takes place, and all of a sudden, the non-believing world is going, where'd he go? Where is she? What happened to them? What's going on? And it's going to be this huge surprise. What's happened? Then only to understand, oh, we've got a second opportunity on this earth. We've got an opportunity now to come to know him. Now we know he's come back. He's taken all these Christians. That's pretty convincing. Whew. Glad I lived during this time because now I know I'm going I'm to come to Jesus now. No. No such thing in God's word. Is there a rapture? Oh, yeah. But not like that. You'll be surprised. Number seven. We'll get to that more later. But number seven. Jesus rightly claims his deity and thus his authority to unveil the triune God's plan for all of history. Verse 8. And I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Folks, this is Jesus now speaking. If you cross-referenced it, understood and so forth, it's the same thing in verse 4 that's talked about the Father. Now it's talking about the Son. We think of John 10 where he says, I, the Father and I are one. Uh, this is his claiming the deity that is his. And he has the right, as we will see in chapter 4 and 5, he's going to have the right to stand before the throne and take a scroll. And he's going to break the seals of that scroll, which is going to unveil to us the pain and the horror, the challenges of this world that we're experiencing. But we'll understand its purpose. It is going to be under the sovereign hand of Jesus Christ. Number eight. John sees Jesus' likeness in his vision and is commissioned to write the revelation. Now, this is 9 through 19, so I'm going to read and just stop periodically and just hopefully you explain. This is rich stuff here. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and your fellow taker, partaker in the tribulation and kingdom. Well, how many people are thinking there's a tribulation to come that you've got to experience and there's the tribulation or there's the kingdom that's to come one day on this earth for a thousand years and that kingdom, oh, no, 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 no. He's saying, I, John, I live in the tribulation. I know the tribulation of this world. And I, part of the kingdom. Christian, you don't have to wait to be a part of a coming kingdom. You are a part of the coming kingdom. And then it says, which was on the island called Patmos because 
of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I, uh, I got an aerial view, looked at uh, Patmos this week, just to kind of see what it looked like, that little island. And, uh, you know, it looks, to me, it looks kind of like a, a seahorse in shape, just to give you kind of an idea of the configuration. Thirteen square miles. He was confined to a very small island. Who knows what was on that island with him? But it was a rugged terrain. Uh, he's been exiled there, apparently because of his faith and his witness. And so he now is going to receive this revelation. So verses 10 and 11 read this way. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. He lists the seven churches. And notice he says he was in the Spirit. We don't know for sure what that means. Was he in a vision of some sort? Very likely. It could be it's the Lord's day. He's worshiping, as we read in John, in spirit and in truth. And he's just in a worship mode when this experience happens. Apparently he sees, but maybe not with the naked eye. He hears, maybe not with the, with the ear as we know it. But he is receiving, wide awake, he receives this revelation that's given to him. It's a voice like a trumpet. Do you know a trumpet throughout the whole Old Testament? A trumpet would be blown, and it was to announce that something very, very, very important was about to take place. And this is important. He is going to reveal himself, Jesus, to John. Now keep in mind, this is his buddy. This is his pal. This is his master. This is the beloved John of Jesus, the one he loved so much. And he hasn't seen him since his death. Can you imagine one that you love more than any other who has died, and now you get to see him again? But he doesn't see him in the same light. Look how it describes him, verses 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice and that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. That's the people of God, the seven churches. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash, his head and his hair white like white wool, like snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Now we've already been told that the seven churches are the light lampstands. It's interesting to see he's in the midst of them, which is his way of constantly saying to us, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. But now the description Follow this description. He looks up and he sees a robe that goes to the feet. Robe representing the righteousness. And this would be found through multiple cross-references that we cannot dig into. This would be his righteousness. It covers him fully. This is the perfect one without sin. The golden sash, Ephesians 6, loins girded with the truth, now he's revealing himself as he has in his teaching ministry. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And John sees him as the truth without error. 
head and hair white like the wool or like snow, referring to purity. John looks at him and sees him in his perfection. Amazed is what he sees. His eyes like a flame of fire, eyes that miss nothing. If you think, oh, he's not seeing it. He doesn't know what I'm doing now. He doesn't know. Oh, no. And then it says this flame of fire, which refers to judgment. Even as it talks about nothing escapes his eyes, this judgment of fire will come on any who are not right before him. Feet like burnished bronze, and it says, which caused to glow in the furnace. You would take a particular metal or whatever, and you would, uh, you would just burn it till the dross is pulled out of it. But when he adds the feet, now he's saying, ah, oh, the feet are what are used to literally stamp upon the enemy. Imagery used over and over and over. And then it says, voice like the sound of many waters. Waters, that which sustains life. He is the one that sustains us. Jesus is the living well. And he sees that, and then he sees his mouth and a two-edged sword coming from that mouth. And when he sees that sword, we can't help but think of Ephesians 6, the Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. And then in Revelation 2, we're going to read, I will do battle against them with the sword out of my mouth. Now, can you imagine such a horrific vision of Jesus, and you stand before him, and you go, oh, my goodness, Jesus. This description is telling us who he is in his essence. Well, didn't we say this is supposed to be encouraging and comforting? You see what happens? See what happens to John? He, he falls down. Let me tell you, before I explain that, know this, that when Jesus presents himself as he does, that should be comforting to you and me as Christians because these things that we perceive as negative are not pointed to us. It's pointed to a world that exists outside of a relationship with Jesus. So we're going to watch the Super Bowl maybe in a couple of weeks. Maybe you got your team in the Super Bowl. Now, come on, how many of you say, you know, I, I certainly want to win, but I really hope the other team does real well. I hope they come out looking good. No, 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 no. Anybody that I'm playing golf or used to play tennis, and, and, and when I be playing them, I hear say, you know, I hope you do very, very, very well. I really hope you play your best. Oh, you're a liar. Come on. You want to mess up so badly that you get to win, right? And we celebrate the victory. Let me tell you, the only way we celebrate the victory is if there is a defeat of the enemy, and that's what this is saying. There will be a defeat of the enemy. And we win. We who have Jesus, we win. That's big. But notice what happens. Verse 17 and 18, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, don't be afraid. And notice what he says. I am the first and the last. Man, I'm from A to Z. I cover it all. I am the complete one. And the living one. I'm not dead. I'm alive. I was dead, 
And behold, I am alive forevermore. And then he says this, and I have the keys of death and Hades. You know what that is? You're talking about comfort, Christian? Key, authority. He has keys, the authority over death. So that when you and I face that last breath, we don't have to worry. He's there in the heavens to say, I got the authority to take you right out of that experience into this one. You don't have anything to worry about when you die. And oh yes, your body and your soul are going to be separated. That's what Hades is. It's disembodiment. This is not talking about hell. No, he's got the keys to that disembodiment. And so what he's going to do is he's going to come back on his day when he comes back. And he's going to take our bodies and he's going to some way bring them back into existence. If we're living at that time, he will transform that body. He has the keys over Hades. He will put us back together so that we can walk on the new heaven and the new earth in a new way. Man, that's encouraging. Good to know the end of that story, huh? Then verse 19, therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Get it all down. Because I want my church to be encouraged. I want them to be comforted. They're going to go through pain and heartache and struggle. Oh, please prepare them. Write it down. Then number nine. The seven lampstands in the vision are the seven churches. Now, we know that because it says that verbatim. So it's referring to those seven churches, which I'm suggesting is all Christians of all time. And the seven stars are the believers within all those churches, or perhaps the pastors. I've always held that it's the pastors. That's uh, Hendrickson's view. But as I studied it more and more, there's also the option that maybe that would mean all Christians. After all, verse 16 is going to talk about how he holds us all in his hand. Many of us think of John 10, no one will pluck them out of what? My hand. The imagery there may be suggesting it could mean angel. There's an angel over every church. Don't think so. So a little confusion there. Not sure what that means. But it doesn't change the whole here. Because the conclusion is this. I ask the question, looking at the whole of chapter 1, who are those for whom Revelation was to be given as a means of comfort. To whom was this blessing promised? If you read, if you hear, blessing. For whom is this that Jesus is referring that he's going to come in the clouds and he's going to come back for us? Or to put it another way, who are these people that he says he loves? Who are these people that he says, I've released you from the sin by my work on the cross? Who are these people he said, I'm making you into my kingdom. You will be my kingdom, and I'm making you into a priest. You're welcome into my home and my presence anytime. You just come to me. Don't go through anybody because you're family now. You come in. Who are these people he's talking about? I'll tell you who they are. They're people who have received grace and peace. Grace and peace. It's for all of us here that say, I know that the work of Christ was merited on my behalf undeservingly. 
And it's for those people who have the peace, that is, the smile of God is on your heart and life. And unfortunately, some of us have that smile, and we don't see it at all. It's as if he's not smiling at us. We're living and thinking, and as if, no, 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 no. He is smiling at you, Christian. He loves you. He's released you from that sin and all that stuff. No, 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 no. He has made you into his people, a kingdom. He's made you priests. By grace, he's given you peace. So let me ask you this. How do you pursue that grace and peace? How do you get it? How do you find it? Here's how you do it. You seek Jesus. But here's where Revelation 1 comes in. There are people seeking Jesus all over the globe, and they're not finding the Revelation 1 Jesus. Maybe they're finding the Jesus of the very famous book, The Shack. Somebody asked me this week, what do you think about The Shack? I don't want to debate. I don't want anybody to write me and say, I don't like your view. I don't really care what you think about that, or you shouldn't care so much about what I think. I'm just going to tell you, I think it's a great book. I think it's a horrible theology, but it's a great novel. I think C.S. Lewis kind of missed it when he made Jesus into a lion. But I have no problem with it because that was not his intent to be a theological treatise. He's making another point. But I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. When John turned and he saw the Jesus of Revelation 1, it was not like Mackenzie who meets the Lord in the shack. Let me tell you, he falls as if dead. That's when you know you've met the Jesus of Revelation 1. You're fallen all, but you don't stay in that state of down. Oh, no. It's when you fall. You've seen him clear enough that you fall, that he comes up to your shoulder, and he takes and he says, get up. I'm here to comfort you. And when you get up, you find grace and you find peace. And then all of a sudden, you find perspective. And the perspective is this. Everything. Everything is going to be all right. I never thought that before. Everything is going to be all right. That's the great story of Revelation 1. It's because of the Jesus of Revelation 1. Seeker, go after him. Look at him. Stay in this study. Pursue him. Christian, don't, don't seek the Jesus you want. Seek the Jesus you need, and when you meet the Jesus you need, you will find the Jesus you want. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for, thank you for Revelation 1. Thank you for the privilege to jump into it as we walk through the seven churches that follow. Bless that time. And we pray, Father, that we would we would fall more and more in love with you through your son, Jesus, even as you have revealed him to us. Thank you so much. And dwell hearts here that are without you. Do it now or do it through the week. Do it through the series. But I pray you would grab every heart here that we might all win when all is said and done. Comfort us, Father. We need that. We ask this all in the great name of Christ our Savior. Amen.